Welcome back to the 162nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why politicians are filthy rich, why we really just don't understand Kamala Harris and how popular she is, and an article talking about how Fetterman it should not be the exception to the rule when it comes to the dress code. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So what would your corruption-free form of government, what would it end up looking like? You know, what if you had to put together a fantasy or you had to put together a utopia and it was a corruption-free type of government, what would you do? You know, I feel like government is always going to lend itself towards corruption because influence and power over the laws that are created are, of course, going to make the people with a little bit of extra money, a little bit of extra influence outside of the government be interested because they could be directly affected by what the government puts in place. But as you know, I have ranted against corruption and a lot of the policies before, so I want to know your opinion. Throw it down in the comments section. And it's a great segue into our first article that comes from the Washington Free Beacon. And the headline reads, The Perks of Public Office. And the book that they're actually reviewing here, and yes, it is a book review, is called The Filthy Rich. And they're trying to not just review the book, but also break down some of its arguments. And I think it was a very interesting read. I'm probably going to pick up the book once I'm done getting through some of the other books that I have to read, which including on that list is Atlas Shrugged. And goodness gracious, if you know how long that book is, it's going to take me a while. That may be over like Christmas, that whole month I'm going to dedicate to reading that entire book. And even then, I don't even know if I could get through it in that time span. But I'm going to try, and this is definitely on my reading list. And this is how they open the article, describing what the book is about. Quote, it pays to be a politician, literally. That's the argument of conservative commentator Matt Lewis's new book, Filthy Rich Politicians, lambasting the culture of corruption in politics that stems from elected officials monetizing their power in the most flagrant possible ways. The timing of the book's publication comes at the populist moment, with the hit song Richmond, North of Richmond, having topped the billiard charts and reflecting widespread angst against the growing chasm between the haves and the have-nots. Lewis, refreshingly, is able to criticize the ecstasies of the ruling class without getting mired in the self-defeating grievance that defines so much of today's populist movement. And I thought this was a really good point when I was first going through it. The idea that, oh, we have to push back, and, you know, we're kind of defeated, like, oh, we're, we're a little bit lower, we're not going to be able to do anything, blah, 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 wah, wah, wah. That sort of mentality doesn't necessarily get us anywhere. Just calling it out, making sure that people are aware of it, aware of this corruption, that's what will cause a little bit of systematic change over time. Also bundled, you can't just have that alone because knowing about it and doing something about it are different things, but having the mentality that we know what the corruption is, we can point it out, and also not being self-defeatist, not saying that, hey, we can't change anything, that this is the system that's been in place for so long that there is no way to actually change it to impose our will on the system that governs us. 
That kind of mentality will lead nowhere. The mentality that, yes, we can indeed change it, that mentality, coupled with understanding how it works, is actually the way forward in a populist era that wants to get things done and doesn't just want to sit back and do the internet commentary thing, which is, you know, a little bit ironic. I am a, a little bit of an internet comment commentator, but I would also say that we're, we're pushing back. I'm, I'm doing some some things where we're trying to change how the system operates a little bit. And even just mentioning it and spreading this word and highlighting it, that's something you can do too. Because like I said at the beginning, having the knowledge is the first part of that equation. So if you read this book or you want to tweet about it, send it out there, spread the knowledge. And then slowly, as these people become more aware of how it's done and how they can actually impact things, the message that you can spread yourself, then there can be change. And maybe I am being naive. I said this a lot, and I've said it towards the beginning of this podcast a good amount, because, yeah, I probably am being a little bit naive. But without that naivete, without that hope, and if you have this self-defeating, this nihilistic mindset, then, of course, nothing will change. You have to be a little bit naive. You have to be a little bit idealistic. And that's why the best activists are young people, because they are at their core, still naive to the way things work. They haven't become callous and ingrained in the system yet. They still hope for better days, and they still have a vision of how to get there. Even if it's not realistic, they will try, and some may even die for their causes. And I'm not saying that you should. Let's be clear. I'm just saying that's why young people make good activists, because they haven't been through the turmoils that have jaded them yet. They are still willing to give their all for movement and for creating the change that they want to see. So there are some great examples that Mr. Lewis here really points out about how the politicians are able to become so filthy, filthy rich with the current system that is in place. Quote, some of the examples that Lewis presents are so familiar that they're often taken for granted. The average compensation for a politician's book deal is often higher than their annual salary. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who touts herself as a progressive populist, raked in $2.8 million from book royalties and advances between 2014 and 2018, over 15 times the salary she makes each year in Washington. So this is one that we are obviously aware of. We know that these politicians, they go on a lot of speaking tours, they do books, and then they do pre-books tours and they sell these books at Barnes and Noble or they'll have exclusive book deals to do an audible version or something like that. And while let's be clear, I'm not saying that these books aren't valuable. Having an insight into the mind of someone who is operating at the highest level of government, yes, that is very valuable. But are all of their insights really that important? Do I really, really need to know what Mr. Oh, let's just choose a, a random center. Do I really want to know what Fetterman is thinking about all the time? No, I do not. Do I want to know what Josh Hawley is thinking all the time? He just released a new book. No, no, honestly, I don't. Some of his ideas I like, but I don't I don't need his lowdown on everything. Now, if you know Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer put out a book about how it is guiding the senatorial process when they're both in the majority and minority, I would find that a very informing book. Or maybe you have certain senators who are on a really interesting committee and they want to highlight something that happened during their tenure on that committee. Like the Armed Services Committee, maybe some information came out in private and they're now able to release it in their book and it's kind of exclusive. Sure, I guess that can warrant a good amount of money, but 
$2.8 million for book deals. Uh, the fact that politicians can get that much does say a lot about our culture and how much we revere them and how much we put them on a pedestal. So there are some other things that they also do, which is, well, actually, I'll just read what Matt Lewis is doing. Quote, he lays out the case against lawmakers of both parties making suspiciously timed stock trades that he argues would be viewed as insider trading coming from anyone else less privileged. Lewis details the controversy or controversy, excuse me, surrounding former Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Byrd dumping at least six hundred and thirty thousand dollars in stock shares after receiving a confidential briefing about COVID nineteen before the pandemic, a case that was investigated by the FBI, but no one was actually ultimately charged with a crime. He also suggests with mostly circumstantial evidence. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is guilty of insider trading for seeking her net worth triple, sorry, seeing her net worth triple from 2006 to 2020 thanks to her husband's well-timed stock trades. We've highlighted this one before, and Dan Crenshaw is also a person that I know there have been allegations against of this sort of insider information and using it to trade and becoming a little bit richer. It's just unacceptable. I don't care if you're on the left. I don't care if you're on the right. It is unacceptable. And, you know, maybe it maybe there should be some sort of extra public filing where Nancy Pelosi or any of her relatives actually have to indicate where they're putting their money. I think that is a little bit of an evasion of their privacy. Maybe they just shouldn't be able to you know, trade, that's also a limitation on their freedom. So I, I don't know a great solution for this one. But all I'm saying is if you follow some of Nancy's moves in the market, even if you're a little bit late, you would still make some pretty good money. So it's just something that's really, really frustrating because at the end of the day, how do you restrict them from doing this? If you come up to them or your their family members and say, no, you guys aren't allowed to trade anymore, that just, it feels really restrictive. It's basically saying, no, you're not allowed to do something that an average citizen is able to do. But also, just like they aren't allowed to go out to certain venues because it could be dangerous, their life could be threatened, there are certain risks, there are certain downsides that come to getting that job. And let's be clear, there's also the argument that, hey, maybe we should pay them a little bit more money so they don't feel like they have to do this insider trading. But also, if you give them more money, then they have more money to play with, which then increases the likelihood that they're going to make more money off of those trades, therefore incentivizing them to actually trade with larger sums of money. I don't know. Like I said, it's a very, very tricky one. And it's not just the members of the House or the members of the Senate or the people around them who are directly involved in the policymaking, you also have to filter it out to their families. Because even if, even if Nancy Pelosi didn't directly tell her husband, oh, hey, honey, you know, you should really buy some Tesla shares now. All it takes is her coming home and complaining, oh, that, that session today, that lawmaking session, wow, oh my goodness, you know, this Tesla thing's really throwing me for a loop. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or, and maybe you may think I'm being cynical with that, but I'm saying, like, no, a genuine slip up between a conversation of a husband and a wife, it could lead to the husband going, oh, okay, so I can get a little bit of inside information. I can press it a little bit, or maybe I can just, you know, trade based on what I know now. So it's a really, really tricky one. And how much do you restrict the freedoms of the people, but 
not just the people in office, but the people around them. It's a, it's a, not a black and white issue on that one. But I wanted to talk about this last paragraph from the article that really talks about the game that the politicians have to play. Quote, Lewis blames politics, or says politics, is a game skewed to the wealthy, pointing out that the median net worth of a congressman is about 12 times higher than the average American. But after reading his book, it seems clear that most of the problems with money in politics come from the demand side. The desire to be rich or famous or well-connected that the political life provides. Children of political privilege, think Jeb Bush or Mitt Romney, usually have been more immune from the trappings of Washington than those who suddenly find their moment of fame in the nation's capital. It's harder to corrupt someone who already has it all financially than it is for someone who suddenly goes from pauper to prince. And this is most definitely true because of the connections that you make there, because of the friends that you find or the potential job opportunities after the political office where you serve your nation, it's very enticing for some people to go up there and say, oh yeah, this is my way to to make a little bit of money. Now, does that mean that we should have a purely political class who they've already got it all figured out, they can just have great sons who are going to be great senators and great kids who are going to be great congressmen. No, no, we shouldn't do that because then it turns into a, you know, kind of family-esque system, kind of like they had towards the middle of the Roman Republic, even though there was the opportunity of some people to make their own way and be a, a good businessman and really fund their way into the office. But that still is going to be a process that benefits people who are a little bit more well off and who have a little bit more resources or have their own business figured out. They can kind of leave their small business behind. It's being run well and they can go run for office. Whereas the person who's struggling in a small business, they don't have the time, even though they could be great. They could be really moral. They could have good ideas. They could be an amazing person having a great impact on their community. But because their small business isn't necessarily thriving and they're not making the most boatloads of money, they can't necessarily step away. And they may be more ideal than some of the people that do step away who use you know, underhanded tactics in order to get ahead in business. But, you know, that is a separate case. And to pretend like that is how it is for everybody, that is not true whatsoever. But it is one of those things where the incentive structure is weird. It's messed up. And I I can't say that I have the ultimate fix. I can say that there are a few fixes that come to mind. Uh, get rid of the incentives for money after Congress. Make sure that it's harder for politicians to go become lobbyists with different companies that they may have worked with on different committees so that they don't feel as though they have to bend to the will of those lobbying firms in the thought or, you know, with the idea that they could go to work for them afterwards and make a boatload of money. But, you know, I'm just a simple person ranting on the internet. So let's jump to our second story, which is a little bit more, you know, juicy in my opinion. Because it is definitely the Daily Cost trying to cover for Kamala Harris and or Kamala Harris. And I don't necessarily know if it is going to work. Like I said, it comes from the Daily Cost. And here's the headline. Kamala Harris. What the media doesn't tell us. So what doesn't the media tell us about Kamala Harris? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Their argument is they don't tell you how popular she is. But then, you know, we need to add the uh, asterisk there that how popular she is among a certain segment of the population, not overall. So I feel as though they're trying to run defense for 
Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris. And I I don't know if it it's really going to work. And that's not because I don't like Kamala Harris. I have really no problem with her besides the fact that she rants nonsensically. But yes, those clips are taken out of context. And also there are, you know, probably what, two to three, maybe 10 minutes at the most of her doing weird things out of hours upon hours of her speaking. Like, come on. Well, of course, we're taking her, at, you know, clips here and there. But also, she's a little bit cringy. She does repeat the same talking points. She has a weird way of speaking. But that doesn't mean that she's not popular. Because even if you speak in a weird way, guess what? If what you're saying is good, it can overcome that. So let's really jump into what the Daily Cost is saying here. Quote, did you know Kamala Harris is popular? Did you know that she is on a tour of the United States colleges and battleground states? Did you know? Heck, have you heard any news about her at all? Time and time again, we read stories about Kamala Harris being a drag on the ticket and being inefficient with a staff in constant turmoil. But VP Harris is actually quite popular with a critical demographic, and since it didn't fit the media's narrative, no one bothered to tell anyone. Before I keep going with this one, notice how they frame it there. It's not just she's popular, but she's popular with a key demographic. And of course, that is a legitimate reason to keep her on a ticket with Joe Biden. There's no doubt about that. But to argue that she's popular and then to whittle that argument down to she's popular with a certain segment of the population, I don't think that's as strong as they necessarily think it is. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and keep rolling. Back in May, The Economist and YouGov published a large poll on many aspects of the American political life, and it turns out buried in slide 20 is the key to Harris's future. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, she polls at 59% approval, strongly approved plus somewhat approved. However, how might that actually be a special weapon? No one is talking about for 2024. But the full poll is here if you're interested. And, of course, I will link the article down below so you can actually go to this poll and read some of the information for yourself. And this is, of course, very, very important. Yes, with the younger people, she is a little bit more popular. And, you know, I feel like that's a balance to Joe Biden, who doesn't necessarily inspire the most faith in love from the younger generation because they look at him like, Oh, Grandpa, you know, let me tuck you into bed real quickly. You want me to get your diaper ready for you tomorrow? Do you want me to get you your pudding because you can't properly chew food? I'm not saying everybody thinks that. Some people really admire Joe Biden, who are a little bit younger. But for the most part, I think everybody can acknowledge that he is getting older and some things are not as easy for him. So having someone who can lock up that younger demographic or, you know, with more favorable ratings, Kamala Harris, that does make sense to me. But that also does not mean that she is popular enough in the other age categories in order to overcome that. So what? 18 to 29-year-olds. Out of the voting population, you have to be 18. And let's just say the life expectancy is somewhere around 80. Yeah, right around 80 nowadays. That is 62 years. So if you take a contingent from 18 to 29, that is 11 years. So basically, one-sixth of the population approves of her. Only one-sixth. Now, I'm not saying that there's other data that says other segments of the population agree with her, but you're saying right now that she's popular because one-sixth. That's the argument they're making. They're saying that she's popular along this age group, and they're citing this as the reason that she's popular. So 
all you need is one-sixth of the population. If not, actually, it's a little bit less than one-sixth now that I think about it. It'd be probably like one-fifth point five of the population. That's what you need in order to be popular nowadays. That doesn't win elections. You need at least, at least three-sixths of the population. Or maybe by some miracle with the Electoral College, you need like 2.9 out of 6% or 6 of the population to actually be supporting you. No, this is not an argument as to why she's popular. This is an argument as to why Biden shouldn't drop her. This is an argument as to why, okay, hey, look, I poll good in a demographic that you don't necessarily poll well in. It doesn't mean she's popular. It just means that she'll pull her weight in the ways that Biden probably needs her to. So where does this misconception come from? Daily Cost tries to outline it here and really give us an idea of why most people's conceptions of the vice president is wrong. Quote, how did this happen? Many folks don't read the mainstream news. Or maybe they know the issues they care about and the modern Democratic Party is perfectly in sync with those issues. The environment, the right to abortion care, gun control, and more. Either way, as I've said before, put Harris out there. Ignore the daysayers because they are operating on a false presumption. Harris is smart and passionate on the things that drive voters like access to abortion care. To capitalize on this popularity, the White House team understands data and how to win elections. Harris has been visiting colleges. No, I know, or now I know, this has been covered to death. You know, snark alert. But this year, it's already been that she has gone to 11 campuses across North Carolina, ATT in Greensboro, North Carolina just yesterday, Hampton University in Virginia the day before. This is smart politics and real, on-the-ground strategic outreach. It's just one reason Team Biden and Harris will be on top next year. Okay, yes, yes. So they, they understand where she's strong and they're deploying her properly. That still doesn't prove your argument. That doesn't prove your argument that she's popular. Your headline literally reads she is popular. And you're trying to shift sentiment by people just reading the headlines and not actually going deeper into your article. And I don't even know if you fully believe it, because otherwise you wouldn't use such flimsy arguments saying, ah, yes, they, the White House knows that she's popular among this one particular group, and that's why they're utilizing, utilizing her in that way. Yes, we understand that she's popular among that group. You can't make a broader argument that she's popular overall. It's so, so insane. I don't understand where this sentiment is coming from. Let's be clear. Mike Pence, not the most popular guy. You did not wheel him out there on the trail every single place. No, you strategically used him just like you did Kamala Harris at each evangelical events and applying or appealing to the Christian vote. That doesn't make him popular overall. That makes him popular with the Christians. So I, it just... Mm. If they want to make a really broad definition and say she's popular in some degree and say that's okay to claim that she's popular, sure, she's not popular overall. I'm sorry, not going to have it. I just I get frustrated when they're trying to spin something that should not be spun because just admit she's not popular. It's not a big deal because you're acknowledging that they're using her in the way that she needs to be used, which is as a strategic bludgeon for the younger demographic. Admit she's popular there, done, over. That's what you did. Great, but then don't try to claim that she's popular overall. All right, so let's jump to our last article that comes from the Washington Examiner. Fetterman is a slob, and Schumer is an embarrassment. 
So if you haven't heard about the dress code changes that Schumer is implementing, and some people are arguing it's just for Fetterman, maybe he has a, a really libertarian streak, and it's like, ah, oh, we shouldn't be able to mandate what you wear in the Senate at all. Maybe he does, but this has been a topic that has gained a lot, a lot of talking points, for, or has gained a lot of attention and created a lot of talking points. And yes, I am susceptible to it twice. I did a Twitter tirade yesterday talking about the fact that there's no respect for the office anymore, both in putting Lauren Boebert in the House of Representatives and then a man like John Fetterman who wants to just flout the rules in the Senate. So yes, I'm falling into this as well. But it was a very strong worded Washington Examiner article. And I thought it merited at least, you know, quoting from a few times and bringing up because I seriously do think that this is not something that we should accept. We should not accept any of our representatives not being the best they can be. And I'm not just saying in mental capacity. I'm saying in dress. If you cannot dress to impress when you are literally representing the people of your district, when you are a symbol of the democracy and the republic that we have here in America, what, what does it say about us? What does it say about the people that elect someone like that who can't even live up, dress up, you know, really come to be a person who respects the office? And yes, I understand. Oh, well, it's not a big deal. You know, he's doing him. He was represented as John Fetterman wearing the hoodie and the shorts all the time. His people are obviously okay with it then I have a problem with the people that elected him who are okay with it. I'm not saying with all the people that elected him. Obviously, he has certain values that work really well, and some people just vote Democrat. But for the people who voted for him and are completely okay with him wearing a hoodie and shorts, gym shorts, in the Senate, one of the highest offices that you can hold within the United States of America, the greatest democracy, the greatest republic on this earth, I really have a problem with that segment of the population because you obviously don't hold enough reverence for the office. You obviously are not voting seriously if you at least did not consider someone who is not going to dress to the upper echelons or to the expected, at least the expected dress code of these people. And I know it sounds like I'm being a prude, maybe not necessarily a prude, but I'm being really over hypercritical of this. But I, I don't think you understand or uh, people who really take problem with this understand the importance of really living up to the legacy of the place that Abraham Lincoln walked in that thousands and hundreds of house thousands of house members hundreds of senators have represented their people people who have given their lives in order to fight for our nation or people who have sacrificed time effort their happiness sometimes to serve the nation you are representing something larger than yourself you cannot be absorbed by your own ego and your own narcissism in order to serve the way that you want to serve. No, you are a servant of the nation now. Like I said, you symbolize something bigger. And do you want the symbol to be, oh, America's slacking off. America's wearing hoodies. America's allowing people to wear 
gym shorts in the chamber. No, no, no. We want to present like a well-refined businessman. We want to present like someone who is a professional, who knows what they're doing, who is taking every single responsibility that they are given seriously, even if it goes against what you feel makes you the most comfortable in the office. And yeah, I'm probably sure there are people who are dubbing. If there's people that made it this far and they care enough, they're probably going to dub me over with the clip. Oh no, oh no, of John Fetterman doing that because he's making it seem like you know impeachment isn't a big deal. But this is this is a pretty big deal, in my opinion. Are we going to lower our standards? Are we really going to elect people who are an absolute joke, just like Lauren Boebert into the office? No. Now, am I going to go as hardline as the Washington Examiner here? No, no, I'm going to be honest. They use some pretty strong language. And I'm just going to read you the concluding paragraph from it because it really highlights all of what they're saying and how furious they are. Quote, nothing improves when Democrats are in power. And it is why the cities under Democratic control feature rampant crime, poverty, and why the schools they control have students who cannot achieve basic math, science, or English proficiency. Fetterman and Schumer are a microcosm of the scourge that is left-wing politics in the United States. They are the catalyst for much of today's or this country's societal ills and a political plague that causes decay at every level. That is, that that's some pretty strong words from the author here. And the the reason they bring up the thing about uh, basic math scores or poverty in cities or you know rampant crime is because they're trying to make a connection that when you lower standards, when you're willing to lower standards in order to change the way that the system works, is that actually a good thing? Does it actually benefit people? Sure. Does getting rid of the dress code benefit Fetterman? Is it maybe it does make it a little bit easier for him to serve out his duty. But also the question becomes, does he take himself as seriously? Now, do other people take him as seriously when he's up there wearing a hoodie and gym shorts rather than a suit? And you may be thinking, oh, that's a stupid example. Well, think about lowering the standards for math scores. If the math score standard in order to pass eighth grade was 500 points out of 700, and now we're going to lower the score to 400 so that it makes it easier for people to be happy and make it up to the next grade and the parents not to complain and to be happy with their child's performance, even though the only reason they made it is because we lowered the standards, is that actually a good thing? Does it actually result in smarter people? Does it result in people working harder to try in order to break that barrier next time? Does it hit people with reality that they have to take responsibility for their actions? Like in math, you have to take responsibility for not knowing something. You have to be willing to ask questions. You have to be willing to practice, practice, practice. You have to look at your previous test scores and say, maybe I need to review this as taking responsibility for your previous actions. And now, Fetterman, guess what? You knew what the standards were when you came into the Senate. You knew what you were getting yourself into, and now you're not taking responsibility for your actions, and you're asking the entire Senate to change its rule systems to bend to your will so you can wear whatever you want. It is shameful. But that's enough from that article. A little bit sad. Let's jump to our daily delight so we can end on a really happy note. This one comes from Laughing Squid. Disabled pig completely captures the heart of her rescuers. So, you know, everyone, they kind of feel for that animal that has a hard time, you know, getting around, surviving, or necessarily fitting in. But 
it was actually something really special about this pig that caught the attention of the people that ended up adopting her. Quote, Lily arrived at Arthur's Acres after it was discovered that she had a shortened leg, which made it difficult for her to thrive. We were called by a woman who brought a pregnant pig, and the pig had babies, and Lily was born with a birth defect in her leg, end quote. And that's just a little bit of the summary of the beginning. And, you know, Lily may be disabled, but she's still bringing a lot of joy to everyone around her, and it, it just proves that you can't let small things hold you back. I know it's an animal, so it's not like, oh, yeah, it's a life lesson for humans, but it still shows you can have joy, you can have happiness, while still going through really rough times and, you know, being a little bit different than other people. Quote, she was a ray of sunshine. The minute she stepped foot on Arthur's Acres property, she realized that she was at home. End quote. And I hope all of you can feel that. I hope all of you can feel like you're at home somewhere and you are being treated amazingly. And I hope that everybody can go and read this article and, you know, get a little bit of brightness, see the really cute videos uh, all of these videos and the other articles will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And you can find the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade, like I mentioned earlier, every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.